Hello, everybody. Good morning. Praise God for those beautiful singers who sang and for Alex who played. You're beautiful too, but you know, it's. Um, and thank you because the songs come from your heart, and that's a great thing. Um, and it's a wonderful way to start. Um, sometimes the songs that we sing you haven't heard or you haven't got used to or you haven't you're not used to singing I think that's the beauty really of praising the Lord together we all have a you know we're brought into a new um, a new opportunity to praise the Lord with different words and um, and that's a good thing I think so um, so let's pray before we start father thank you that um, thank you that you gift uh, that you gift us so magnificently, actually. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to sing praise to you. Thank you that um, we are praising you and thanking you for what you have done for us, Lord, that you have set us free, that you have uh, called us your child, that because of Jesus, we can come into your presence boldly to your throne of grace to find all the help that we need. Thank you, Lord, that, that you have done that. Thank you that you've opened the door wide and said, come in, because you love us. And Lord, help us now to love you back today. Help us to, um, to do what the scripture says we love because you first loved us. Help us to love one another and to love you and to uh, just choose this moment to put everything else aside, all the difficulties of our lives, all the circumstances, all the pain, all the sorrow, all of it, Lord, and just leave it to one side and just focus our attention on you as you speak to us through your word. Lord, um, we were praying this morning that you would do a special thing today, that you would open our eyes to scriptures in a way that we perhaps haven't seen before, Lord, that even if they're familiar to us, you would, you would reveal something more of yourself to us so that we could praise you for it and, and love you for it. And that's my prayer now, Lord, for, for all of us here, for myself and for everyone in the room, that we would see you in a different dimension today, that we would see something new about the Lord Jesus. And that seeing would change us right on the deepest part of who we are, Lord. Um, and, that, and that we would be able to go out from here at the end of this day, knowing that we have been in the presence of the living God. And what a great joy that will be, Lord. So I pray for everyone in the room, myself included, that you would help us to lay aside those things that are on our minds and uh, causing us concern in all sorts of different ways and that we would really right now focus on your word and on you who are the living word. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, over the next uh, few conferences, we're going to be taking a look at the letter to the Hebrews um, a letter to uh, Jewish believers and unbelievers, I think, written about AD 68, 69, just before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And I think it's God's clarion call. It's his resounding call through whoever the writer was. Nobody's sure who the writer is, and I don't really think it matters because it's God speaking and God telling him what to write. But there's this huge call from God at a time of impending crisis that they consider Jesus. 
consider Jesus. And so uh, for this conference and uh, for the one in February and the one in April, uh, we are going to be looking at Jesus. Um, Jesus, this time, the high priest. Jesus, our high priest. Jesus, the great high priest. Next time, Jesus, the um, perfect sacrifice. And then in April, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. All scriptures from Hebrews. And um, uh, it's a strange letter, actually, when you think about it, because we mostly think about it's only written to believers, Jewish believers. The letter was written to Jewish believers. Of course, they were far and away the majority of believers in the beginning of the church. And uh, it's, right, it's written to them because they are... Uh, suffering persecution, persecution from the Romans who have already declared that Christianity is a, a not a, re- a recognized religion. And so to be a Christian, to follow Christianity in any way was outlawed by the Roman Empire. So they were being persecuted by the Romans and they were also being persecuted by their fellow Jews because the, the Jewish people who had not believed in Jesus wanted to call them back into the temple and to all the practices. And that's really interesting in the timing of this letter because what God is calling out to the whole nation of Israel and to Jews everywhere is, very soon your religion is going to stop in its tracks, because when the temple is destroyed, you will not be able to make the sacrifices that enable you to come to me. And so whether or not you are able to keep seven of the Ten Commandments, whether you're able to keep the multitude of laws that uh, they had to keep, will make no difference, because according to Leviticus and Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, "...without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness." And so if the Jews who were hanging on to their religion and calling these Jewish believers in Messiah back to come back and and go into the Mosaic law and to worship in the same way they did, if they succeeded in calling all these believers back, they would in very short time have a totally defunct religion. It is not possible to find forgiveness without the shedding of blood. That's what the Bible says. It says it in Leviticus. It says it all the way through in different ways and different shapes. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there is no life. That's the reality. And that's what God is calling them to. You're you're calling your brothers and sisters back to a religion that is dead and is soon to be totally and utterly made impossible for you to worship. And uh, in Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus, I put it down in, your, in the notes, Leviticus 17, verse 11, it talks about the, the sacrifices being the atonement for sin. The atone, atonement just means covering. It means a covering over of the sin. And so the Jews were able to come into the temple one day a year on the Day of Atonement and then various times throughout the year and have their sin covered, covered over, which meant, of course, that God didn't see it because there was a covering over their sin. And that was made by the blood of animals. But of course, I would think everybody in this room understands that Jesus was the final perfect sacrifice, which we will talk about next time. And so his blood shed for us 
not only covered our sin, but it actually removed it. What happens when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ is not just that there's a, you know, that, that God suddenly puts us in a little bubble which is coloured, you know, and so he just says, I'm going to cover up their sin, and then when they can, when they can do better, I might lift the cover up a little bit, and when, when they can live for five minutes or ten minutes without thinking something wrong or feeling something <laughs> wrong, then maybe I'll, I'll, you know, take the cover off a bit more. That's not the case, not the truth about Jesus. Jesus took away our sin. His blood, perfect blood, took away our sin. That means it's removed from us. So think about all the scriptures that you know, that someone has told you that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your transgressions from you. Think about the scriptures that say he refuses to remember them anymore. All of that is true because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And can you imagine the Christian Jews, the the Messianic Jews, the, the believing Jews who are being pulled and pushed this way and that way to give up their newfound faith, to give up their their uh, trusting in Messiah and go back into a religion that would just remove the uh, forgiveness that they have and put them back under a under a system that allowed them no, no lasting forgiveness. It was simply a reminder of their sin day by day. So um, the believers are suffering this persecution. As I say, Christianity has been outlawed by the Roman Empire. uh, And consequently, their faith and their conviction of it, their assurance of it, their uh, enthusiasm were on the decline. And the whole letter is about a call to come back, come back, come back. Several times in the letter you read, don't give up meeting together. Don't encourage one another every day. You know, there's this idea of you've come into a family and you need to be with that family every day. And I know they're probably going to get on your nerves sometimes, just like human families do. And they're not going to agree with you about everything. But nonetheless, you need to get together and you need to be sharing the truth of your faith because that is a way that God is going to encourage you and enable you to stand. Um, it's an emergency, emergency situation, and uh, God is rekindling, trying to rekindle a fire that is in danger of going out. And uh, what he wants them to know is basically two things. You are in the right place. If you have believed in Jesus, you stand in the right place before God. There is no other place to be. It is the only place to be, and you are right with God. So that's the first thing. If you've believed in Jesus, you are in the right place. And the second thing, if you have believed in him, you have believed absolute truth. Absolute, eternal truth. Because Jesus is eternal, absolute truth. And the whole letter, over and over again, I don't know how often you've read Hebrews, but if you read it over and over, you'll start to become very aware of the phrase, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Don't let him leave your thinking for longer than five minutes. Keep focusing on who this Messiah is, who this Christ is. Because knowing him, thinking about him, meditating on him will lead to you praising him and trusting him and enjoying him. And that will light a fire in you that will never go out.
Um, God will say over and over, Jesus is and always will be enough, more than enough. He's enough for today, he's enough for tomorrow, and he is enough for eternity. He is the all-sufficient God, and he is enough for every situation and every circumstance and every difficulty and every, every part of your life. He is enough. He is enough. I talk to people who's, um, has mostly I talk to women whose husbands have just died, or I know women who've lost husbands. I know people in all sorts of difficulties. And uh, sometimes when you're thinking to yourself, how am I gonna, what am I going to say, Lord? How am I going to help? You know, I, I just I don't have the words to say, and I don't know how to say it. And, and really, if I say Jesus is enough, what does that sound like? You know, what does it sound like? But the reality is, the truth is, he is more than enough. And if you invite him in to your pain and your sorrow and your hurt and your doubt and your fear and your everything, you will find that he is what he says he will be. Um, but why do we then, 2020, in 2020, 2,000 years later, really, more, why do we need to know what's in this letter? Why do you and I need to understand about Jesus being our great high priest? Why do we need to, to know what he's done to be our great high priest and what he's continuing to do whilst he's carrying on as our great high priest? And, of course, uh, one of the reasons is what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture, all scripture, including the letter to the Hebrews, all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for teaching, for training, for rebuking, uh, so that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God is adequate and equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. So we need to know what Hebrews says, what God said through this letter to the Hebrews, because that is going to train us and equip us and make us adequate to do the work that God wants us to do to fulfill the purpose for which we're still here. I mean, anybody who's been to more than one of these things will start to groan now, because I'm going to say again, as I always say, if the only purpose in you coming to Christ was, if the only purpose in this life, rather, was for you to come to Christ, why haven't you been beamed up, Scotty? Star Trek, for those who, you know, remember that. Not Star Trek, is it? Yeah, yeah, Star Trek. Beamed up Scotty in that sort of thing where they, where they go up, you know, in particles. Why didn't that happen to you when you believed in Jesus? If that was it, that's not all there is. You're here, and because you're here, that you know that there's a purpose, and there's a plan, and there's a reason to your life, and there's meaning, and it's bigger than you, and it's bigger than me, and it's bigger than all of us collectively, it's so big that we can't always hang on to it because it seems too big for us. We look at ourselves in the mirror and see someone who's not capable of doing this big thing, even if we can imagine what it is. And that's the whole point. That's why you need the letter to the Hebrews. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not able enough. You're not good-looking enough. You don't have enough money. Your education was severely lacking. You don't have the right... Um, accent. You don't speak in the right way. You don't look the right in, in the right way. But God has filled you with his spirit, 
with the spirit of the living Christ and he will enable you to be more than you can imagine, more than you can ever think because he will fulfill his purpose through you. Look at the person you came in with. Look at the person you came in with. You know, try to miss the imperfections and the whatever else you can see and look at that person and see that person as who they are. You are a witness to the magnificence and the glory and the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the entire human race. You are a witness. Without you, there will be people who do not hear the truth about Jesus. There will be people that you talk to that I would never meet. There will be people that Linda talks to. There will be ways that you exhibit the grace and the mercy and the love of God out into the world that you live in, and people will one day praise when they see you enter heaven. They'll be there before you, and the doors will open, and you'll walk in, and people will be saying, there he is, there she is. That's the one, that's the one. She told me about Jesus. He told me about Jesus. He lived a life in front of me. He was there when I needed him. She did this, she did that, and that is what we are all about. That's what we're here for, because that is how we love God. My prayer at the beginning was, Lord, help us to love you. How do we love God? We love each other, and we love who he loved. And when we don't have the words, we remember All scripture is God-breathed and suitable for encouraging and teaching and training and rebuking and all the things that we need so that the people of God will be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that's the first one. The first reason we need to read this letter to the Hebrews is all of that. The second reason is that almost certainly we are coming to the end, to the time of the Bible calls the day of the Lord, the time of the great tribulation. And I'm not going to spend too much time there because, of course, we, it may not be tomorrow or next year. You know, there are many people in this room who think it's very, very close, and I'm one of them. But that doesn't mean we're right. People have been thinking it's close for a long time. Paul lived as if it was going to be tomorrow, and he lived 2,000 years ago. So we don't know. Nobody knows. But as we look at the world that we live in, we see the signs that the Bible talks about telling us to prepare for this time of the end. And if it's true that we are close, and we're definitely closer now than we were 10 years ago, If it's true that we are close, then everything you do and everything you think about and everything, every part of your life has to be about how can I share the truth of this Jesus? How can I give this this information, this, this truth about who he is? How can I share the fact that this God has reached into the deepest part of me and changed me in ways I didn't even know I needed changing? He's filled me with love and joy and peace and given me, given me that in the face of difficulties that would have knocked me over if I hadn't had known him. There are people in this room who are testimony to that right now. There are people in this room who have just gone through or are still going through tremendous, tremendous pain and sorrow. And I hope you get an opportunity to talk to some of those people 
Because their statement of faith is mighty. It's mighty. And that's why we must come together. So why do we need to look at the book of Hebrews? Because it's scripture and it's all good. Why do we need to look at the book of Hebrews? Because I think we're coming towards the end and the time that we live in is very similar to the time that those Hebrew Christians lived in. And why do we need to look at uh, the book of the Hebrew to the letter to the Hebrews? The third reason, because God through Peter had already written to them and to us about a judgment that begins with the household of God. If you just turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, it's just a little bit after Hebrews. So 1 Peter chapter 4, um, verse 12. 1 Peter 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of, God, spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in, his, in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Um, I think this is quite a scary passage, and I think uh, it's, it, for that reason it's not often talked about and I think very often misunderstood. Um, the word that's translated judgment here doesn't mean punishment or wrath. It comes from a root, a Greek word, the root of the Greek word, which means division, assessment, evaluation, or separation. It means to try and t test something and to make a decision. And it should go right back to his statement in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. And that word testing is exactly the same word that was used of Christ's temptations in the wilderness. So this is not punishment that is coming on the household of God. This is not judgment in terms of condemnation. This is not God's wrath. This is an assessing, if you like, a proving of faith. Was God judging Jesus in the, in the wilderness when Satan came with what we call the temptations, which were all also called, could be translated tests? Was God judging Jesus? No. He was just teaching or proving or bringing out of Jesus what was there. He was, he was showing or evaluating the faith. Think about it. Do you think God needs to, to test you to see if you believe? Does God need to do that? No, he already knows whether you believe or not. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. So this, this testing is not a testing to uh, discard those who don't believe and hold on to the ones who do. 
that he's not going around the swimmer. I'm going to test them all today. And then those who fail this test, they're out, I'm afraid. And those who don't, they're in. That's not it. You're all in. You're all in. Hold on to that. You are all in. Do you believe in Jesus? Everyone raises their hand. You are in. You are in. Finally, for once in your life, you are in the in crowd. <laughs> Make the most of it. You didn't think the others would look like this, but they do. You are in the in crowd. And that's the truth of it. So this testing, this testing is to bring out of you, in a way, the, the, the reality, the character of who already is in you. It's to bring out of you the character, the personality of Christ Jesus, who lives within you. And Humanly speaking, we would all say there must be a better way to do this. I mean, couldn't you just wave a magic wand and bring it out? Does it have to be through difficult times? Because that's what it means here. He says, and if, the right, if, it's, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, that's not difficulty because it's hard to get you saved. It's not hard for God. He can do anything at any time, any moment. Nothing is hard for God. So it doesn't mean that it's difficult to get the righteous saves, it, it saved. It means it's often with difficulty that that salvation comes out into fruition. With, through difficult circumstances, through difficult trials, through difficult uh, periods of your life, that process of God is bringing out the um, glory and the character of Christ Jesus. What is he telling then, Peter telling these Jewish believers that he's writing to, the Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews is going to say much the same thing. Um, what is he trying to, to let them know? That's a question. What's he trying to let them know? He's, trying to, he's talking to them and saying, this persecution you're enduring from every side of you, from the Romans, from your own life, from your family sometimes, from your, maybe even from your spouse, this, this persecution, this suffering that you are undergoing is going to result in tremendous glory. Because, yes, You get closer. Exactly. And the closer you get to Christ, the more you shine for the glory of Christ. And as I say, humanly speaking, we would choose any other way. But this is God's way. And what he wants to tell the Hebrews, what he was telling the, 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 the Jews that Peter was writing to, is this will result in your strengthening. It will result in your being established in your faith. It will result in glory. Because he knows some things we don't know and that we forget. Life is not fair. Human life is not fair. It's not easy. And very often we forget it. Or we think it's supposed to be. So then we think, well, what's gone wrong? But actually nothing's gone wrong. That's the way human life is. Human life is not fair. Human life is not easy. Human life is very difficult. That's why you need God. Human life will creep up on you when you least expect it and knock you over. That's why you need Jesus. And anyone who's lived longer than five minutes knows this. So God is reaching in to the difficulty that's already there and saying, hold my hand 
and I'll, you'll walk upright with me. Hold my hand and you won't fall. In Romans chapter 8, if you, if you can just quickly whip to Romans chapter 8, you'll know these verses really well. So uh, Romans 8, 28. Uh, for God causes all things to work together. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say? Say then to these things, if God is for us, who could be against us? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things. All things. In a way that it just seems impossible to us. And he does that in a world that is ruled by Satan. How amazing is that? Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we... Uh, sorry, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Why does God use all of these things to, to, to um, assess and bring out the uh, glory of God in us? Why does he cause all things to work together for good? Because this world is under the control of Satan. If you didn't know that before, you need to know it now. And Satan is your enemy if you love Jesus. He is your enemy. And he will use every trick in the book. He will use every, everything he can to come against you to try to destroy you. This is not something to be afraid of. This is something to be aware of. And God, through Paul in Romans 8 and through the writer to the Hebrews, assures us that the sovereign most high God is, is causing everything to work together for our good and not simply to result in glory for God, but to result in glory for us. Glory and joy and peace as we realize, sometimes with absolute surprise, that our faith really has been strengthened, that we have moved from glory to glory that we actually are stronger than we were before. In the most amazing way, the things that this world, the things that the enemy thinks is going to knock you over and keep you over, God just... Psh, and out you come, shining. Shining like a new pin. So... Um, Paul will write in um, 2 Corinthians that uh, uh, 
and that one of the reasons God allows you also to go through some of the things that you're going through, given that this world is not easy and that it's not fair and that you have an enemy, is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Count the number of times the word comfort is used in those two sentences and then ask yourself a question. What do you think God wants you to know? He wants you to know that he is a comforting God. And the word comfort in scripture doesn't just mean you put an arm around someone and you, and you just you know, say how sorry you are and how terrible that is. The word comfort in, in scripture means strengthen and encourage. So when God comforts you, yes, he's consoling you. He's putting his arms around you. But in that consoling and comforting, he is in, in fact strengthening you so that you are able to come close to someone else and then comfort them. What, do you, what could you possibly help someone else in in divorce if you had never known the pain of divorce? How will you ever help someone if you have not understood the loss of a child? How will you ever get to grips with you know, losing your job or being financially in a terrible hole if you, if, uh, for someone else if you have never experienced that sort of deprivation and fear. That's what God does. He strengthens you to enable you to strengthen someone else. His message through the letter and through the whole Bible is actually consider Jesus. Just consider Jesus. And as I say, that's what we're going to do. Um, so uh, the, the testing that's going on in your life, the difficulty that's going on in your life, the situation that you can't manage, that you don't know how to get out of, you need to just hang tight in there because God is going to use that for your glory. He's going to use that for your strengthening. Um, and now... Uh, in this letter to the Hebrews, that's why we're going to look at, is that um, God is reminding them and reminding us that he's sovereign, you see, because the, what happens to us as humans is when we are beset with all this stuff and we start to really suffer as Christians, which we are beginning to do in the West, we start to think, maybe I've got it wrong, or maybe I've done something wrong. Or maybe I'm missing something because I'm suffering in this way. Or what didn't I do that I should have done? And maybe if you just tell me what it is, God, I'll go and do it. But I'm sure it must be me because you're supposed to be sovereign. You're supposed to be in control. And didn't you say that if I believed in Jesus, I would be healed? So why am I still sick? And so inevitably the questions come when we're facing any difficulty and especially when we're facing opposition because we're standing for the truth of Jesus, then those questions come. And that's one question that I want to put before you and me today. How much persecution for you being a Christian are you actually suffering? Because Paul writes to uh, Timothy... 
Anyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the question is not, am I going to be persecuted? The question is, if I am not being persecuted, what does that mean about my life? What does it mean? And not necessarily persecution in the way we see it, not necessarily locked up in prison, and although 250 million Christians around the world are suffering that type of persecution right now. We in the West don't have that yet. But we have persecution in other ways. How much is it costing you to stand up for the truth of Jesus? Really? How many discussions over the dinner table are you saying transgender cannot be? How many times are you saying, you know, God loves those people with an everlasting love and he wants to bring them into his family, but he wants them in, in the sex that he gave them? And how many arguments are you having about abortion? How many discussions are you having about uh, the holiness of the church? I'm not talking about the buildings. I'm talking about the church, the fellowship of believers. I'm not talking about where you go on a Sunday necessarily. I hope you go into a fellowship of believers on a Sunday, but that's not always possible. Sometimes we go in and we are the, the missionary in that place. And that's okay. That's okay. And I'm not talking about judging the holiness in that place because if the people there are not Christians, how on earth are they ever going to be holy? I'm talking about the holiness in the ranks. Okay, you came here. You're a Christian, right? How holy is your life? And, and are there issues that God has been speaking to you about that you've just said, you know, that's not so important, Lord. It's more important that, the, that you help me with this right now. Because that goes on all the time. Anyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a statement of fact. But whatever you may be suffering, um, God will enable you to endure. And his way of doing that will be to call you to a holiness and a holy living that you actually cannot do alone. And that's why his whole cry is, keep on looking at Jesus, considering Jesus. So this today is about Jesus. It's about the God who is the living word. It is about the creator and sustainer of all things. The God who is, uh, who, or the Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, who is our uh, Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, our Deliverer, who is mightier than the mightiest foe, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, who is now and forever will be our Savior and Lord. It's about him. And it's about him as the living word. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the, li- the word of God is living and active. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through... Um, uh, sorry. Uh, 
for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Um, this this uh, scripture is really scary, isn't it? It's like, oh you know, piercing through, judging the, in, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And it's just like, oh, you want to shield yourself from it, don't you? Which can't be the real thing, can it? Because God's calling us to his word all the time. So this can't be a bad thing. This judging and going through you cannot be a bad thing. It's got to be a good thing. And actually, it's so wonderful that when we read about this sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we read about it in Ephesians 2. Paul talks about it as our weapon. Remember when he says, Therefore, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the evil one. And then after he talks about some of the uh, armor, he says, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is your friend. It is your weapon. It is the way that you defeat Satan in your life. Now, he's not going to say something totally different in his letter to the Hebrews. So this, this, living, uh, this living word uh, being active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing through, through soul and spirit and joints and marrow has to be a good thing. It has to be a good thing. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. What assurance we can find in the fact that this sword, this living word, will show us the truth of our heart. Okay, now I want to ask you a question. What are the intentions of your heart? What's your desire? See, I don't really have to ask you because you're here. What are the desires of your heart? As best you know them, what, what's the desire of your heart? Just shout it out. To love Jesus. You want to love him. You want to love him more than you did yesterday. You want to love him better today than you did yesterday. You want to do the work he created in advance for you to do. Don't you? Isn't that true? You want to live a life that pleases him. You want to do that. So if, I t- if I'm going to tell you that his word is going to cut through to the thoughts and intentions of your heart, what are you going to say? Bring it on. Because that's what he's going to find. That's what's going to be there. And so why is he going to do it? He's going to do it to show you what's there and to show you the lies that you've believed that have gotten in the way. The lies that you've accepted about yourself, the deception about God or about Jesus or about yourself that have got in the way. And that sword is going to go right in and you needn't be afraid of it because it's going to winkle out all that stuff that is hidden and deep, deep down low that you didn't even really realize was there. And certainly you didn't know it was deception. You thought the voice that you were hearing telling you you were rubbish and that you'd never amount to anything and that you didn't have any gifts and that you need to be afraid and that you need to be anxious about this because what on earth is going to happen? You thought that was an honest voice. And all the time, it was a lie directly from the enemy of your soul. And God's word is going to pierce through your heart and dig it out. Dig it out. What an amazing thing, don't you think? What an amazing thing that is. 
And we're going to, uh, yeah, we're going to uh, finish up this first session, but it, it won't feel like finishing because it'll take a while. We're going to read um, about this living word of God, this sword that is sharper than any, or this word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we're going to begin right back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. And um, we're going to understand how, when we want guidance and help, how are we going to experience this word as living and active? And, and when we want to make a choice and we're uncertain how to go and, and we're uncertain what to believe, we want to know how this word is going to penetrate deep into our soul and give us understanding. And, when, and does God speak only through his word? Or does he speak with other voices? That's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to look at. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, which I think might be the most amazing verses in Scripture, although I say that a lot about different things. So Uh, so chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These are absolutely amazing verses and we could probably spend hours in them, just hours understanding the greatness and the mercy of, and the grace of God. But we're just going to take them apart just a little bit and see what we can see. So verse 1, God, theos, that word for God there is theos. It is uh, the whole God, the triune God, the supreme being, God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. How did God speak long ago? How did he speak? Through the prophets. Even, and, and another way, how did he speak? Just think about what you know about God speaking. Yeah? What, what happened when God spoke? The world happened. The universe happened. God spoke and things were created. The universe happened. So God, it says here, he spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But now, how has he spoken? Through Jesus. God spoke and mankind was created, male and female, in the image of God. God's word produced human beings. God's word produced a planet. His word produced everything we can see and everything we can't see. His spoken word produced those things. And now that same spoken word, which he used to speak through the prophets to tell his people things, now he says that that he is speaking in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. He has spoken to us. It's done He has spoken to us. Everything God wants you to know about him is found in Jesus. Everything. 
There is nothing else apart from Jesus for us to know. How can that be? How can that be? That's a question. How can it be? You don't know, do you? Because my mind's a bit odd. So you don't know what the answer is on the page. But the answer on the page is, how can that be? Because he's God. He is everything. He is beyond everything. He created everything. Everything. How can everything be in his son, Jesus? Because his son is God. His son is God, 100% God and 100% man in a way we can't fully understand. Jesus is God and God has spoken in him. You want to know how to live? What are you going to do? You're going to look at Jesus. You want to know what to do? Look at Jesus. You want to know what to say? Look at Jesus. You want to know how to praise? Look at Jesus. You want to know how to sing? Look at Jesus. Hear him speak. So if that's true, if God's spoken in his son and we're to look at him, but he's not here, are we going to be a bit lost? Why do we study the word? Because it's a good book, but why would we study it? It's about Jesus, God breathed and... Because Jesus is the word of God. He is the living word of God. So this good book that has got 66 books in it is not just what he said and what he did and how he did it. It's what he's saying and what he's doing and how he's doing it. You want to know how to live? Ask Jesus. And don't you think, what I'd love is I could just like, okay, Jesus, what, what am I going to do? You know, It's almost like the book, can, I can hear it. Well, how am I going to get to that place where I can hear it like that? I mean, it's all simple questions because you need simple questions, right? Because you want to get some answers right. So, so how am I going to hear that voice? Oh, Anna, I love you. Practice. Of course, I'm going to practice. And how am I going to practice? Read it. I'm going to read it every day. And when I read it, what am I going to do? Act it out. Yeah, act it out. But before that, before that even, I'm going to pick it up and read it. And I'm going to say, God, I haven't got a clue what this means unless you explain it to me. I thought I knew what that meant, actually. I thought I knew what it meant that Jesus was God and man and that his name was Emmanuel, God with us. I thought I knew all that that meant. And then you'll open up Matthew chapter 1 and you'll read those verses and he will blow your mind with a truth about Jesus that you never saw before. Because he is speaking. We're studying Luke on Tuesdays. I mean, how many times have you read Luke's gospel? You must have read it at least, what, four, five, six times? I've read it tons of times. I read the Bible every year, all the Bible, every year, apart from all the study I do. I've read Luke at least 25 times since I began reading the Bible through every year. I've read it once a year for 25, well, maybe not 25, 20 years. I'm seeing things in Luke I never saw. I'm hearing Jesus talk to me about things I had never known. I'm seeing things in parables that I could almost recite off by heart that I have never seen. Why is that? 
because this is a living word. It's a living word. It's a revelation. Exactly. So, um, God spoke, things happened, and uh, now he says this power, God's word, is in his son. And uh, he's going to go on and talk about his son. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. What does that mean? He is, and he's the heir of all things. What does that mean? The heir. What does the heir get? He inherits everything. What's everything? Everything. Everything. Okay. I can see blood out of a stone. Right. He inherits everything. There is nothing that exists that Christ will not inherit. Has not already inherited, actually, because he exists outside of time. It's all already his. You belong to him. I belong to him. Even people who don't believe in him belong to him. He's their creator, and he's the heir of all things, and those things he has already inherited. He is the heir of all things, and he owns everything. He created everything. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. Um, you've got the scriptures written down, so you don't have to write them down. Just flip there if you can. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He is the owner of all things because he is the creator of all things. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 to 17, um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What do you think the Bible wants us to know about Jesus? He's everything. He's everything there is. Everything. And there's more, of course. Of course there's more. Not only did he create all things, but, and he is the heir of all things, but he, is, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1. Um, uh, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. What does that mean? How does Christ uphold all things? Propels it forward, yeah. How does he do it? He speaks. He speaks. And things are upheld. I, I, it's, it's fanciful and not scriptural, but I like to think of it this way, that God spoke, Jesus spoke, or was the agent through whom creation was made. He was the word spoken out, and now God is whispering to keep everything going. 
So the spoken word created it all in an instant. And now he is whispering, continually whispering to keep it going. If God doesn't keep talking, you and I stop being. If he doesn't, if he doesn't keep on upholding us by the word of his power, then we stop existing. And not only did he create all things... Not only is he holding it all together, he is the radiance of God's glory. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're going through these things because the book of Hebrews is all about consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at who he is. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's done. Keep on thinking about Jesus. And right at the beginning, he tells us, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And that refers to the Shekinah glory of God. If you read the Old Testament and you look at Exodus 40, verse 34 to 38, you will read that the glory of God traveled with the Israelites when they were brought out of Egypt as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. That was the Shekinah glory of God. And the word Shekinah means Dwelling. It means dwelling. What is the Shekinah glory of God? It is the dwelling glory of God. Where does the God, the glory of God dwell now? In Jesus and in you. The glory of God dwells in you. I mean, it's almost blasphemous. You don't want to think about it too long. The glory of God dwells in you because Christ dwells in you. And he is the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God. John will say in John chapter 1, verse 14, And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What was the Shekinah glory that traveled with the Israelites in a pillar of fire and a pillar of of cloud? It was the glory of Christ Jesus. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And seraphim and cherubim are flying all over and they're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And John then takes that, takes that. And in his gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 41, he says, And Isaiah spoke of Jesus. Who did Isaiah see high and lifted up? He saw Jesus. Who is the glory of God? Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And what is that glory and how can we understand it? Think about the sun. Think about the sun in the sky, when it is in the sky and you can see it. Think about the sun. And then think about the rays of the sun. You know, you can see the rays of the sun, especially when you look um, at sort of uh, documentaries about the sun. You can see the rays of the sun. Which part of the rays is not the sun? The rays are the sun. They are just the outward evidence of the sun. What is Jesus? He is the outward manifestation of God. He is the glory of God. He is the outward expression. Hebrews says the radiance of God's glory. Who are you? You are the radiance of Christ. When you are filled 
with his spirit. And to be filled with his spirit, when you read about that in scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit. That is talking about be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Just as alcohol, if you're under the control of alcohol, you'll be you know, walking up and down here and you won't be able to speak straight. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. How are you going to be under the control of the Holy Spirit? And how's that going to happen? You're going to say, Lord, I'm surrendering everything that I am and all that I have. And I want your living word to cut through my heart. I want you to show me the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. Because I don't want any deception in there. Because I want to shine for you tomorrow in a way I didn't shine today. And I want to do and be all that you want me to do and be. Because I believe that you are God most high. And that you have a purpose for my life. I mean, can you say that? Can you say that? And if you can't say that when you came in, I pray God that you can say it when you leave. You are, what did we sing? A child of God. You are the radiance of God through Christ, through Christ who lives within you. Christ is the dwelling glory of God. He is the exact representation of God's nature, the exact imprint. Our word character comes from that word image, our character. So Jesus is the exact character of God. The exact representation of the very substance of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, in him all the deity, all the... You should know it. Come on, where is it? Colossians chapter 2. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Christ is God in the flesh. And finally, what did he do? He, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it mean that he sat down? He's finished. It's done. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who sits at the right hand of God? The God-man. Jesus, the dwelling glory of God, sits at the right hand of God. He is equal with God. He is God. Exactly. And in Christ... Yes, wow, Patty, wow. She said, and in Christ, so are we. Thank you, Debbie. Um, yes, and so what? we're going to take a break in a minute and um, catch our breath. Um, well, I'm going to catch my breath. You haven't done much talking. <laughs> I'm going to catch my breath. <laughs> um, so uh, what to think of when we're thinking about this letter to the Hebrews, when, when God is calling us to consider Jesus. What he's talking about here is think about this man who came, who, who took on, the, this God who came and took on flesh, this man who died the death you couldn't die and gave you a life you didn't have. Think about this man every day as much as you can. Practice thinking about this Jesus. 
Understand who he is and who it is that lives in you and who you live in. We are in Christ Jesus and he is in us. Think about this Jesus and assess your life on the basis of who he is. Don't look in the mirror and make any assessment. You'll be wrong. Don't listen to any voice that tells you things about yourself without checking out what God tells you about yourself. Don't listen to arguments about whether God did this or he did that or how long he took to create or, or how he created. or I mean, just it's a smokescreen. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He is God and you, and who took on flesh and stepped down. Why? Look at Hebrews chapter 2. We'll look at it this, uh, the next session. But For it was fitting for him, Hebrews 2 verse 10, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He brings many children. <laughs> sons is, is male and female to glory. Why did he take on flesh? To bring many of us to glory. To restore us, in effect, to the glory we had with God in the beginning. When we were first, when Adam and Eve were first created. Behold your God. That's what Hebrews starts with. Can you imagine getting this letter I mean, can you imagine opening up the scroll? I mean, would you ever get out of the first sentence? Can you imagine those believers, those Jewish believers suffering such persecution, being told, this is your God? This is the Lord Jesus Christ.